Well, this morning we come to the end of our time in First Peter uh, through this particular series, anyway. Uh, and I'm, I, as we do, we want to thank God for all that He's been teaching us over these ten weeks, these ten sessions or so through this brilliant New Testament book. And uh, I, I would personally love to hear uh, of your experience of our time in God's Word and what has God been saying to you over these weeks. Uh, what has he been teaching you about himself, about his word, about your life? Um, are there any changes even in your life that you've made as a response and in response to what God has been teaching? Um, so please do share those uh, and those continued reflections. Uh, share them with me. Yes, definitely. That would be such an encouragement. Yeah, but also share them with one another. Uh, God's word is living and active and, and we want to make sure that we are uh, doers of the word, not just hearers of it. Uh, and so let's encourage one another with those kind of lessons. Um, so, so ask one another maybe uh, in the car park afterwards or through texts or a phone call this week. Um, what, what has God been teaching you as we've been studying First Peter? Um, what, what's been changing in your life as a result of our time in God's word together? Um, but for our final session this morning, we're going to take in the whole of chapter five um, of this letter. Uh, it's another jam-packed uh, passage with lots that we could explore um, and, and you get the sense as we read through, which we'll do in a second, uh, that Peter is, is wanting to uh, continue to share teaching in these minutes, um, but also give a punchy sort of signing off advice uh, as he rounds his letter off and, and almost trying to then summarize and keep in, keep in re- his readers' minds the lessons that we've been thinking about throughout. Um, and we believe, because this is God's divinely inspired word, that he is the author of these words uh, through Peter's pen. And so as God has been teaching us, uh, let's look at this chapter through those eyes as well. What has God been teaching us uh, as a whole through this chapter, uh, uh, through this book? Um, What's he teaching us afresh through these specific words? And how can we continue to follow him? Uh, So let's read these these verses from chapter 5. We'll read, as I said, the whole of 1 Peter 5 together. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. Encouraging, encouraging you to test and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you 
who are in Christ. Let's pray together as we turn to think on these words some more. Father, we thank you that your word is indeed living and active. Thank you for the gift of your word and the free access we have to it. And God, I pray as we turn to it now, that we would hear from you, that we would be shaped by you, and that we would be challenged and encouraged and equipped by you uh, to continue to live out our faithful following of you as we stand firm for you in the world and in the places you've called us to. So thank you, God, for this time. May you be honoured through it, and may you speak clearly. Amen. Uh, as I mentioned in the, the introduction there, that this, is, this chapter is quite varied in its content. Uh, it does seem that Peter is wanting to remind uh, his readers, and therefore God wanting to remind us as readers today, of some of the important things that he has been dealing with, as well as leaving that, that punchy advice uh, that, they, that we mentioned, uh, those statements that will be ringing in their ears as this letter comes to an end. Um, it's, it's clear though that he's also wanting to teach about God's church to God's church as this people gathered as God's church uh, and, and bubbling under the, the surface throughout the whole chapter uh, raising its head a few times is that ongoing desire to ensure that God's people are equipped and encouraged to stand firm to stand fast uh, in a world that may be hostile to their God and hostile to their faith in God uh, and so I, can, I think we can see at least three ways in which uh, God through Peter is trying to equip and encourage us as 21st century readers to stand firm for him uh, in a context that can be similarly hostile to our God and our faith in him. And so here are those three ways. We stand firm as God's flock. We stand firm under God's hand and we stand firm for God's glory. Stand firm as God's flock in verse 1 to 5. Under his hand, verses 6 to 9, and for his glory, verse 10 and 11. So let's firstly consider those five verses, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning, uh, thinking about those five verses directed towards the teaching us to stand firm as God's flock. God's flock, the church. And Peter begins this chapter by talking specifically to the elders, uh, and there are strong words and significant words here to those who are elders within the local church. Um, But that doesn't mean that these words aren't helpful for all of us who read this letter and for all of us to hear this morning. Remember, 1 Peter was an open letter written to groups of believers throughout Asia Minor, modern day northern Turkey. And so this letter would have been read communally among the whole church as it gathered. And so let's not skip over these verses, uh, resign it to a discussion that the elders should have amongst themselves. No, this is important for us all. Um, By the way, the elders are due to meet this evening. We would value your prayer as always as we do that. Um, So this teaching about elders is important for us all to hear, but, but why? Well, we all need to hear this teaching from God because it helps us to keep our understanding of elders in line with Scripture. Namely, what we're going to consider now is the responsibility in being an elder, the rationale for being an elder, and our response to our elders. The responsibility in being an elder, our rationale for being an elder, and our response to it. And that those are issues that we all need to hear as it helps us to keep ourselves and our church in line with God's word. So firstly, the responsibility in being an elder. Look at the role, uh, at how the role of the elder is described in, in verse 2 there. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Shepherds of God's flock. See, it's clear here, as it is in other portions of scripture, which speaks to and of elders, that, that elders are in that role to serve Um, We'll talk about this more in a second, but we cannot overstate this. The elders of the local church are not the ones in charge. 
It is not their church. Um, Perhaps that sounds a little simplistic, but it's really important that we make this clear, that the elders are not leading their church in their way. No, the church is God's church. It is God's flock. And another imagery used throughout the New Testament that speaks of the church, we see it described as Christ's body, as God's family, as the bride of Christ. And these images and others help keep our hearts and our minds focused on the reality that we are Christ's church. It it is he who unites us, he who calls us, he who leads us. He is the one and only head of his church. Uh, Now, of course, elders are biblically mandated and and God has outlined the the character and the attitude that these men should exhibit uh, to be commended for that role. But we must never divert our attention away from the fact that Christ is the head of the church and we seek his direction, his leadership of his church. Uh, And that's the message that that we, the the five of us who are currently serving as elders here at Gilnerg, we need to hear that. Uh, it's also something that we all collectively as church family here in Gilnerhurk Baptist need to hear in order that we all may keep uh, help to keep one another focused on the right thing um, or should I say the right person that we keep ourselves focused on Jesus he is our head he is our lead he is as verse 4 states our chief shepherd see we are his church and those who God calls to be elders should shepherd God's flock that is that is under their care and this is the responsibility in being an elder that I was referring to, not responsibility in terms of a list of duties or in terms of uh, meetings to be attended, but, but a posture of the heart that always bends towards God. And so therefore how God would have us shepherd the flock that is under our care. That's our responsibility as elders to constantly bend our hearts towards God, seek his leading for his church and therefore we can shepherd the flock under our care. That's the responsibility in being an elder. Secondly, let's consider the rationale for being an elder. Um, what I mean here is, is based on verses 2 and 3. And it speaks to the attitude that elders should hold. The, the reasons they should seek to serve God's church. Look at these verses with me again. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Be shepherds, watching over them. Um, Now I realise that the farming metaphor uh, is based on a lifestyle that isn't so commonplace amongst us now, but we clearly understand that picture, don't we? The the shepherd's duty. The shepherd's duty was to protect the sheep from the the fiercest of enemies, to, to lead the sheep to healthy and good pasture, Uh, to guide and correct when the sheep strayed off course Uh, and this is a clear picture of how christ leads his church as we see in verse 4 he is the chief shepherd and even if you think that beautiful passage in john 10 where we see jesus describe himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep that's the model that every church elder should follow that's what it means to be an under shepherd under the chief that we protect we guide we teach we seek to provide spiritual nourishment we serve, we care for, and ultimately all of those things flow out of a deep and a very sincere love for the flock. That's what motivates Jesus as the chief shepherd, and that's what should motivate elders today. That the sheep have been entrusted to the under-shepherds for a time, and from a place of love and care, 
they are to tend to the sheep, to watch over them. And so the elders are to love the sheep. That's the driving emotion that enables them to lead and to serve. And through the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, Peter breaks that down a little bit more. And in doing so, we're taken right into the heart of an elder. Are, are they genuinely seeking to serve? Or has the, the lure of supposed authority or status or position or, or influence sinfully swung their hearts to desire that lofty task? And we'll look at the comparison that Peter lays down here. Why should someone become an elder? What is the heart of a true elder? Well, not you should seek that not because you must, but because you are willing. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. See, can you see how, how these attitudes are deeply embedded in someone's heart? These go much deeper than a, than a checklist of activity uh, that the rest of us can outwardly measure to see if someone fulfills the criteria if you like to be an elder but what we're talking about here are actually attitudes of the heart that are in and evident in someone's life whether they have the title or role of an elder or not you see there, there's a genuine desire of someone's heart to serve in fact I, i'd be really concerned actually if we only saw these attributes this servant heart, if we only saw this love of God and his people, if we only saw an example of discipleship once someone was given a particular role or title, that's actually a huge red flag that, that those things aren't genuinely being worked out in someone's heart already. But rather that would seem to me that they were activities that were put on almost like a show to, to gain status or respect. And that's a dangerous position uh, to be in. But elders... Elders should already be living in the reality of what's positively described here. Serving because they're willing, eager to serve, being examples to the flock. And therefore, by becoming an elder, if you like, the church is merely recognizing what God is already doing in that person's heart and how that person is serving and therefore setting them apart to serve in a more focused and deliberate way. Now, all of that is not to say that elders are perfect or always will act perfectly or communicate perfectly or always make perfect decisions. Remember, they are still human, dealing with their own battles with sin and temptation. But it is to say that we should be able to see clear godliness in the heart and life of elders, a real desire for Christ in their hearts. And so the rationale for being an elder has got nothing to do with status or authority or position. It is all to do with service and love and care and a deep devotion to God and to his people. That's why someone should be an elder. That's the rationale. The final point we see here is the response to our elders. We see this in verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Submit to your elders. And and yes, there's a specific compulsion here to the young to submit to the elders, but I think there's a wider frame in mind that, that just as sheep follow their shepherds because they know that, that the shepherd loves them, that he has their ultimate good in mind, so we follow our elders, knowing that they are diligently following God's way, God's truth, that they are setting an example of the discipleship that we are keen to follow, as we see in the end of verse 3. And so we submit in response. 
so we see important teaching here about elders, about the responsibility in being an elder to, to lead others to Christ and to Christ alone, not seeking their own leadership. We see the rationale for being an elder, that there's a heart of service that's motivated by a love for God and a love for his people. And then the response to our elders to submit to their leadership as they set an example for us of faithfully following Jesus Christ. See, eldership is is a lofty calling and and I don't think we should treat it lightly, nor do I think we do currently. And therefore, as an elder here among you, I want to thank you for your prayers and your support. And I also want to personally commend our eldership to you. Now, I know I don't need to because you know them well. But God has gifted us with godly, loving men whose hearts are for God and his people. And I know that much goes on behind the scenes in many ways as these men love you and pray for you and serve you in many different ways. But I want to personally take this opportunity to publicly honour Cyril and Jonathan and Michael and Paul. It's a personal pleasure to serve alongside these men and a corporate pleasure of all of us to know their godly influence on our lives and therefore to follow the example that they set. So let's continue to pray for our elders as they lead us. Um, but before we leave this, this first overarching point as we stand firm as God's flock, uh, let's look at the second half of verse 5 because it's more than just about church leadership. Standing firm as God's flock is actually about every single one of us. The second half of verse 5 reads, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humility. It's a key New Testament principle. In fact, it seems to be a key indicator of a follower of Christ, that they are humble. But but what does it mean to live a life of humility? Well, I think Philippians 2, uh, 3-4 to helps us greatly here. This wonderful passage that speaks to us later in the chapter of Christ himself. But first of all, it starts with, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Value others above yourselves. Look to the interests of others. This is seriously countercultural, but it is also incredibly inviting. I mean, what a glorious picture a community of this would be to those not only within it, but to those not yet part of it. See, this is how we're all to clothe ourselves. We actively choose to consider others, to, to value others, to look to the interest of others above ourselves. And why do we do that? Well, we're commanded to here. But Philippians 2 goes on to show that wonderful example and that demonstration of humility that Jesus laid down for us. That he left the glory of heaven. He came to earth in order to die the penalty of sin so that we might be forgiven and restored in our relationship with God for this life and for all eternity. That's the example that's been left for us. Jesus humbled himself took on the the appearance of a man and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And and so we should seek to follow that humble, sacrificial example. And we do that for one another. Jesus left that example for us, that we humble ourselves. Uh, We clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Uh, And here's another reason why we choose humility, getting back to 1 Peter 5. See, Peter quotes here from Proverbs 3.34 and it shows that God shows favour to the humble. In other words, living a humble life is living a life that pleases God. 
We've seen this a number of times through First Peter that, that our motivation in all of life is to please God as we follow him. And so is the same here. Why should we seek to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another? Because that is what pleases God. So here's the first thing that, uh, that we see from these words from Peter. Uh, as he comes to the end of his first letter. And it's about the church. It's about God's flock. God's given instruction to those who would lead to the elders and to the, all the congregation about how we should conduct ourselves with one another, the attitudes we should hold with one another. And so as we today seek to be that faithful expression of God's local church in this place, let's ask God to help us to be more and more in line with his word for his glory. That we would indeed be standing firm as his flock. The second thing we see from these verses is how we're to stand and continue to stand firm under God's hand. See, having outlined the importance of one another in helping us to stand firm, Peter now picks up some of the things which he had made clear throughout the letter up to now. The reality that following Jesus in a world that can be hostile to him is not an easy path. However, we must never forget that we don't walk that path alone. Not only do we have one another to support and encourage, but we follow the mighty God. Look at verse 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. And many of us will be familiar with verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. It's a wonderful truth. Uh, and one of those verses that could be easily printed on a, on a thoughtful card or a nice mug. But let's not miss the remarkable, powerful truth that it's showing. That we cast all our anxiety on him. Uh, and I know there are a huge number of things which can cause anxiety for us. Uh, and it can often feel like a, like a massive burden that weighs us down. But the encouragement here to cast all our anxiety is incredible. I have a note in my Bible actually from when Leslie looked at this verse with us in a prayer meeting previously where uh, he helped to explain that the casting here shows a very deliberate, decisive action. It's a very purposeful unburdening of that anxiety. The ESV actually captures it well by using that continuous verb, casting all your anxiety on him, continuing to cast, repeatedly casting your anxiety on him. You see, we have the freedom, the wondrous freedom to approach the throne of grace, the mighty God, and continually pour out our burdens on our concerns to him. What a wonderful God we serve. And this is, this is so powerful. Maybe more powerful than we sometimes think. Yes of course this verse is worthy of a, of a coffee cup quotation. But it is certainly not confined to the limits of a, of a little trite comfortable saying. We have the ear of the mighty God. Whose hand we are sheltered beneath. According to verse 6, that same hand which will lift us up in due course and hold us safe and fast right into eternity with all of him. This is powerful stuff. We cast our anxieties on him, our burdens on him. And remember also that Peter's writing here to a group of, of maligned and persecuted Christians who've been dealing with all sorts of struggles and anxieties. But the encouragement here is that to be under the mighty hand of God was and still therefore is the best place that we can be. And that's partly because he is mighty and powerful, yes. But God, as we've seen from verse 7, is also delicately loving and caring. Remember the mighty hand 
of the caring God. What an encouragement, therefore, to continue to stand firm. We stand firm under the mighty hand because he cares for us. But but this encouragement from verse 6 and 7, to trust in the mighty hand of God, to cast our anxiety on him, shouldn't in any way lead us to some sort of comfortable passivity or or laziness, as if we're going to glide through life uh, going with the current. No, verse 8 and 9 move on to very helpfully recognize the practical uh, steps that we need to take because life following Jesus can be difficult because we face an enemy. Look at these verses with me, verses 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now now as we look at this for a moment, let's keep in mind that we are under God's mighty hand. The powerful, mighty, caring king does not leave us to fend for ourselves when we face this enemy. Yet we do have responsibilities for ourselves to take which can help us to stand firm. If I could put it like this, we, we enjoy both God's sovereign care and his loving instruction to take action. It's both and. And we need to take heed. We need to take heed of this because of the enemy that we face. Look at the description of him there in verse 8. He, is, uh, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, the enemy we face is, is sneaky, is conniving, is deceptive, yet is vicious and aggressive and ferocious and certainly not to be taken lightly. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind. It's the third time in this letter we've seen that phrase, be alert and of sober mind. And, and that's no surprise because we know through other schemes of the enemy which, which we can see in scripture that sometimes his attacks are brazen and obvious yet other times they are subtle and well disguised so, so don't be drifted along be alert and of sober mind know the voice of God clearly know him well enough to be able to recognize his voice remember John 10 that the sheep recognize my voice and follow me know his voice well enough to be able to recognize the subtle sometimes subtle lies of the enemy as he seeks to take us off God's course be alert and of sober mind and therefore verse 9 resist him standing firm in the faith don't give an inch of ground resist and stand firm in the truth of the faith that we see in God's word remember the imagery of the armor of God back in Ephesians 6 the shield of faith is what extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one we see there. The shield of faith. That's why it's repeated here in verse 9 that we stand firm in the faith. Resist him. In Ephesians 6, outlining the armour of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The only offensive weapon that we have against the enemy's lies is the truth and the word of God. Stand firm. Resist him. And verse 9 continues, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, you're never alone in the fight. It may sometimes feel like that as you're being bombarded by enemy rockets from all sides, but you're never alone. As a child of God, you are part of his family, a sheep in his flock. You're never on your own. Not only do you have your brothers and sisters around the world, who many of whom are, are facing a very tangible kind of fiery ordeal that we talked about last week, 
but you have brothers and sisters right here with you now, physically in the building with you or down the street if you're watching online. You are never on your own in the fight because your brothers and sisters are with you. And more than that, remember that we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. God's mighty hand is with you. So resist him. Stand firm in the faith. And I don't mean any of that to sound trite. As if there's going to be immediate release from whatever is going on in your life. But there will be an eternal release from this battle. Our God reigns victorious. And he will come to finally defeat evil. To finally put an end to pain. So stand firm against the enemy's lies. Stand firm against his attacks. Put on the full armour of God so that you may stand. And so we stand firm under God's mighty hand. And with that eternal reigning picture in mind, let's briefly finish by considering how we stand firm for God's glory. Verse 10 11. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. See, once again, God through Peter helps to focus our gaze on what matters most. Yes, we may face trial, we may face suffering, we may face persecution, but this life is not all there is. In Christ, by his grace, God has called us to his eternal glory. Eternity is our home. Our inheritance awaits us. God has already won the victory and he will come again in glory. And we see that in verse 11. To him be the power forever and ever. He is the ultimate ruler. He is the ultimate authoritative one. So in the midst of suffering and pain and anxiety and enemy attacks, keep your eyes on the prize that is coming. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And in doing so, verse 10 shows we will know God's strength. Now through the trial and in the end when he comes or calls us home. That the God of all grace, verse 10, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast in him. And that phrase, the God of all grace... How good is it to know that our mighty and powerful and majestic and victorious God is gracious? I don't know about you, but I need his grace continually. As in this fight, I get things wrong. I fall short, make wrong decisions, I take my eyes off the prize, I falter in my resistance, I doubt, I let anxiety rise, I, I, I seek to take control of things that I should know I should surrender, etc., etc., etc. But thank God that he is gracious. And when I come to him, he gives forgiveness and strength to get up and go again. You see, he is the one who makes us strong, firm and steadfast. It is his spirit at work in, in us, helping us to know his ways, to know his truth. It's his spirit that, that fuels our desire for his word so that we know the rock on which we stand and the God in whom we trust. Yes, of course, as we've said already, I'm part of that equation as I seek to obey. But on my own strength, I'm not going to stand firm against the prowling lion of an enemy that we have. But praise his name that he makes us strong, firm and steadfast. Therefore, we can resist him standing firm in the faith. And the reason that we desire to stand firm, 
the reason for all of that, the reason for living our lives for him in a world that sometimes feels like it is against him is because we know his truth. We know that he is, his word is true and right. We know that his grace is sufficient. We know that his eternity is promised. And so we see in verse 12, Peter signing off saying, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. See, God is the source of grace and truth. And therefore we long that others may see him, that others may know him, and therefore know the eternal salvation that he offers. See, we want him to receive all the glory that's due his name, because even though we live in a world that sometimes doesn't seem to value who he is or what he's done or what he continues to do or what he is coming again to bring into being, that we know him to be true. We know him to be good. We know him to be father. We know him to be loving and kind and generous and just and fair and powerful. And therefore we long for others to know him too. We long for others in a nutshell to sing God's praises, to, for his glory to be extended, for God to indeed be exalted on high. So we want to stand firm for his glory. And isn't that a fitting place to end our time through this series in this great New Testament letter? A letter which has taught us much about persevering in the faith. A letter that has increased our joy in the salvation that we've been granted. A letter that's outlined the practical steps for how we can effectively live out our following of Jesus in a world that can often feel hostile toward him. And a letter that has taught us much more than that. But ultimately, as with all of Scripture... I pray that our time in this series and in this letter has elevated our view of God's grace, of God's wondrous provision for us in Jesus, and therefore increase our praise of him for what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do in us, through us, and for his glory. And so as we finish today in this wonderful chapter, I pray that he'll help us as we continue to stand firm. And we stand firm for him as his flock together, as his sheep. We stand firm under his mighty hand, that hand that is strong, that is powerful, that is loving, that is caring. And so that hand that can hold our concerns and our anxieties. And we stand firm for him all for his glory and his glory alone. I pray you know God's blessing, his peace, his assurance and his salvation in our lives as we continue to live for him. Amen.